Tonight, the nation's capital is a quiet city. The 75th Congress is adjourned, and the president, who returned to Washington from Hyde Park, New York, only this morning, prepares to leave on a lengthy cross-country trip which will take him to the Pacific Ocean to many regions in which the midterm congressional elections are now underway. Tonight, before starting... In 1938, as the nation struggled to overcome the Great Depression, President Franklin Roosevelt was facing challenges. He'd won re-election two years earlier in a landslide victory. I am very glad to come back among you, my old neighbors. To Roosevelt, that victory meant he had a mandate to push forward his domestic policy agenda. That agenda included a set of reforms he called the New Deal. It was intended to provide relief for the poor and recovery for the economy by significantly expanding government programs. But soon, those reforms faced opposition amid a new economic recession. And FDR's proposal to expand the courts by adding justices likely to share his own ideology concerned many in Congress. Many lawmakers began to perceive FDR as trying to gain too much power. Roosevelt faced opposition from congressional conservatives, yes, but also from members within his own Democratic Party. Conservative Democrats in Congress aligned with Republicans to block FDR's New Deal reforms. And so, frustrated by this pushback to his agenda, FDR took unusual action. In the months leading up to the November midterm elections of 1938, FDR began using his signature fireside chats to publicly push voters to vote for more liberal Democrats. The voters throughout the country should remember, they should remember that need for continuous liberal government when they vote next Tuesday. FDR hoped to oust conservative Democrats in favor of their liberal Democratic opponents. And he invited voters to factor the president's national agenda into their congressional election. Charged with the responsibility of carrying out the definitely liberal declaration of principles set forth in the 1936 Democratic platform, I feel that I have every right to speak in those few instances where there may be a clear-cut issue between candidates for a Democratic nomination involving these principles or involving a clear misuse of my own name. Roosevelt traveled by train through several southern states, denouncing conservative Democrats and promoting liberalism as the party's ideology. Look over the rest of the names on the ballot next Tuesday. Pick those who are known for their experience and their liberalism. Pick them for what they have done and not just for what they say they might do. Ultimately, his efforts failed. Not only did he fail to unseat most of the conservative Democrats he targeted, but Republicans won 81 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and eight seats in the U.S. Senate, shifting the balance further against his agenda. FDR's New Deal stalled in the 75th United States Congress. Despite that failure, Roosevelt's intervention in the midterms had a long-lasting impact on the presidency. Many historians see this moment as opening the door for our modern-day presidents, leaders of the executive branch, to campaign on behalf of their congressional interests in the midterm elections. 
And as we head into this year's midterm elections, our current president's role in campaigning looms particularly large. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. With a few days left before Americans head to the polls, we're taking a look at how President Trump has invited Americans to consider him when making choices at the ballot box. And in this campaign, who has Trump endorsed? What strategies has he honed? And will his outsized role in the midterms ultimately matter to voters? Midterms are almost always, to some degree, a referendum on the president and the party in power. Washington Post White House correspondent Ashley Parker has reported on Trump's strategies leading up to the midterms. She's explaining how Trump seems to be taking existing precedent to the next level. So with this president, you'll see him going out and at rallies saying stuff that is even more overt than some previous president saying, you know, a vote for this candidate in West Virginia is a vote for me. A vote for this candidate in Montana is a vote for me. He said, pretend I'm on the ticket, pretend I'm on the ballot, pretend you're voting for me. So what's interesting, normally when you have these rallies where a president shows up, it's a rally for the candidate in that state. And then the president sort of does a pitch for the candidate. What the president is doing here is almost the reverse. He's basically holding Make America Great rallies. And then the candidate often feels a little bit incidental. It's Ted Cruz happening to arrive at a Donald Trump rally in Houston and the president saying some nice things about him. That said, there there have been some concerted approaches. And as we've gotten closer to the midterms, the big thing we're seeing is sort of a pitch of fear. One thing that the president and Republicans are doing in tandem, and this came after Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation process, is portraying Democrats and liberal activists as angry, unruly mobs. The president's been talking about how Democrats would socialize medicine, how they would take away Social Security and Medicare. And now more recently, he's sort of seized on this actual organic thing that's happening in the news, which is this caravan that is coming north, heading towards the southern border. And even with this level of involvement, though, Trump has implied that he will not take any responsibilities for a blue wave or for Republican losses in the midterms, right? Yeah, absolutely. He said that publicly and he said that privately, which is interesting for a president who on the one hand is trying to insert himself into a referendum, also saying that if Republicans fail to hold the House or the Senate, probably more likely the House, He accepts no responsibility and that it would be the blame of bad candidates or Republican leadership in Congress. And what's interesting is I was at a Trump rally a couple weeks ago and I was interviewing a number of his supporters and saying, if Republicans don't hold the House, who who would you blame? Who would be to blame? And they sort of to a person, no one faulted the president. They mainly blamed they blamed Leader McConnell. They blamed Speaker Ryan. They blamed the rhinos in Congress. They blamed Republicans who haven't worked with the president to pass his agenda. So they're willing to blame members of the Republican Party, but just not the president himself. So it's not a particularly fair or accurate message necessarily from the president, but it is one that does seem to be resonating with his voters and they are willing to accept. So is Trump uniquely good at firing up his base? Like, Is this approach likely to work? To your first point, uh, is he uniquely good at firing up his base? 
Absolutely. Yes. Um, He knows what they care about. He knows how to speak to them. He knows the cultural issues and the wedge issues and the passions that animate them. He knows the language that will be catchy and memorable and resonate and that once he says it twice, they will be able to repeat back to you. Um, So he can absolutely fire up his base. The question is, can he fire up his base in an off-year election to show up to the polls to vote for someone who does not have his personal appeal? But at this point, the White House and and his advisors and sort of Republican operatives in general say that it is going to be about him. It's always about him. And there's no harm in trying to turn out his base. The concern, of course, is that the president in doing so alienates some Republicans, some of these, again, more moderate, independent suburban women. Uh, That's an open question. Or that he energizes the Democrats. An interesting thing I heard talking to a political strategist is, yes, He very well may energize the Democrats, but they said the Democrats are already incredibly energized. So the question was, have the Democrats already hit their ceiling, right? Like at a certain point, you're energized and and you show that by going out and voting. So if you are already going to go out and you are already going to canvass and you are already going to vote, does it matter if the president, by mocking Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, makes you even more angry to do all the stuff you are going to do? And we just don't quite know yet. Many Republican candidates in this midterm cycle have tried to find just the right amount of Trump to insert into their campaigns. If midterm elections are often a referendum on the president, how are candidates balancing Trump with the issues their voters care about most deeply? Yeah, yeah, we talk about midterm elections as if they're one election, but we're actually talking about hundreds of different elections. Uh, And on the federal level, you know, somewhere from between 50 and 70 federal elections that matter. Michael Shearer is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. He's been covering the lead up to Tuesday's elections. Most of those districts right now are not places that want to see President Trump on the Republican side. And that's because Republicans are in very tough re-election races. And one of the things they're running against in terms of headwinds is disapproval of the president. These are places that have voted Republican for decades in many cases, and a lot of well-educated voters are rebelling against the president's behavior, his character, the way he's held the office. That doesn't mean the president doesn't matter, though, because it leaves a lot of other Republican heavy areas, and that matters most in the Senate's seats. In in that circumstance, the the Senate races that matter are, are races, for the most part, that are held by Democrats, and they're in very red states, places like Montana, Missouri, Indiana, tight race out in uh, Nevada, one in Arizona. And and those are the places where the president has been more helpful, although he's had to have a light touch in, in certain places. Um, you know, he was down uh, earlier this week in Florida campaigning for Ron DeSantis, who's running for governor, and Rick Scott, who's running for senator, the current governor. And it was slightly awkward because he doesn't really poll very well in that state. That state, And that's one of the reasons that both those candidates are behind in the polls right now. You know, previously, earlier this year, when President Trump went down to Florida for a rally, Rick Scott didn't even show up at the rally. So it's a delicate circumstance. What, what Trump can deliver, though, his people believe, is Republican enthusiasm. Let's focus a little bit on the candidates that are using Trump to hopefully bolster their standing. Have we seen Republican candidates using tactics, trying to act Trumpian, trying to kind of embody President Trump? You know, that was the story of the Republican primaries earlier this year. You know, the best way to get through a difficult primary, especially in a lot of these Senate contests, because that's where the primaries were, was to claim to be the Trumpiest Trumpy 
Trump fan. And so you still do see that. But but for the most part, uh, since we've gotten to the general election, those candidates are trying to expand beyond that core base. And they've toned down their Trumpiness a little bit. You know, uh, another good example of that is Ron DeSantis, the gubernatorial candidate in Florida. He, he ran a campaign ad uh, right before he won the primary in which he was reading his, I think, one or two-year-old child, The Art of the Deal, and helping the the toddler build a, a, a toy wall. In one of the first debates he had in the general election, he made clear that that was all a joke. He doesn't really read Art of the Deal to his son. He doesn't really build a wall with his son. He's still a fan of, the, of Trump, but he's just not quite as obsessive as he was putting forward during the primary. So that's sort of the typical uh, you know, reaction of these candidates. That said, you know, there are plenty of these candidates that, that you know, will meet him on the tarmac and embrace him and, and show up at his rallies and, and are very happy to take the stage. He, he likes giving people their five minutes during his rallies and, and, and give their spiel. Are we seeing any Democrats embrace Trump-like behavior, perhaps not embracing Trump himself, but kind of acting in a particularly outspoken or crass way, embracing the Trump kind of persona? I don't think so. Democrats, I, uh, I mean, the, the, it's really hard to first pull off Trump's persona in a way that comes <laughs> comes through. Uh, but also, I think Democrats across the board, even in red areas, feel they have at their backs an advantage. The fact that this sort of sense of constant crisis, of division, of of sort of national political emergency that we kind of live in now is something that their voters would, would like to move a little beyond. What about Trump's most controversial stances? Do we see Republican candidates echoing Trump's hardline immigration stance, for example? Are there candidates talking about the caravan or nationalism right now? There are a few seats where, one in Minnesota, the Tennessee Senate race, where the caravan has been picked up as an issue. And I think Democrats would agree that they do not win on the immigration issue and that if we're talking about immigration right now, at least for the voters everyone is trying to get right now, uh, they're losing. And it's actually been pretty remarkable how silent Democrats have been this whole cycle when it comes to immigration, with the exception of that period in the primaries where there was that debate over abolishing ICE. The only messaging you really hear from Democrats, if anything at all, is to say, I don't want to abolish ICE, and then try and move beyond it, which is exactly why... President Trump has decided these last three weeks are all about the caravan. They're all about birthright citizenship. They're all about crime that's coming. They've been sort of reviving past crimes committed by undocumented immigrants to put them in the headlines. They've talked about sanctuary cities. And there are a number of television ads running in some of these districts to try and remind Republican-leaning voters why they're Republicans and not get allured by what in many cases are very attractive Democratic candidates. They don't have much partisan history. They're veterans, they're attorneys, they're prosecutors. They present themselves as very moderate, center-of-the-road people. And so Republicans have been using the issue of immigration to sort of remind voters of the contrast, that there are actually two different views on how to approach that topic. Have they been wrapping that into a larger strategy of fear? Well, yeah, I think fear as an emotion is sort of a dominant Republican theme. And it, I think it's been that way for many cycles. I, if you go back to 2002 after the 9-11 attacks and that midterm election, the fear of terrorism was a theme in the closing weeks of that. If you go back to 2014, Islamic extremism was showing up in campaign ads. Trump has just taken that sort of undercurrent and put it front and center. And it so dominates 
the Republican discourse right now. The high point of the last two months was coming out of the Kavanaugh confirmation. A lot of Republicans were a little skeptical of Trump, were very happy they'd gotten their Supreme Court justice. Uh, they were upset at the way he had been treated, and they gave Trump credit. They gave the Republican Party credit, so they were coming home, the polls were moving. And immediately, both Trump and the Republicans and outside groups pivoted to this idea that there was this Democratic mob and that and that what had happened with the Kavanaugh was this sort of angry, unhinged, neo-anarchist fringe of angry people had been unleashed upon the country. And it was converting what was basically a you know debate over jurisprudence in the country, in the Supreme Court, into a fear-based narrative. And that has since faded. We've had obviously three horrible tragedies, these these hate crimes or politically targeted mail bombings in recent weeks. And that sort of undercut that Republican messaging. But Trump has almost every day, he'll mention the shootings in Pittsburgh. He'll mention maybe the mail bombings, and then he'll pivot to anger at the press and the danger of the caravan and immigration. And generally, are voters talking about these things? Are voters talking about Kavanaugh, the caravan? Are they talking about the Pittsburgh shooting? Kind of what, what's on voters' minds? So here's where I think Democrats have the advantage and know they have the advantage. What is talked about on the front pages of newspapers and on cable news every day is not what voters say they care most about. And it's been pretty consistent all year that the concern in the country remains the sort of pocketbook issues that have been the big issue for the American people for more than a decade since since September 11th. And the biggest way that is, because the economy is doing very well, the biggest way that is manifesting itself is through health care. And so consistently in polls, if you ask what are the issues you care most about, it's health costs. And Democrats have got a huge advantage on that. The Republican effort last year to repeal Obamacare, which would have raised uh, premiums considerably for people over 50, which limited pre-existing conditions in some ways, did a lot of damage to the Republican brand on that. Given that a lot of the things that Trump is discussing publicly aren't necessarily the first thing on the forefront of voters' minds, are Republicans wanting Trump's endorsement? Is Trump's endorsement an asset to them? It depends which Republican where. Uh, You know, Mike Kaufman in Colorado's 6th District wants everyone to know he's very critical of Trump. He's a Republican. He doesn't want Trump to come. He's probably going to lose that seat because there's just so much anger and frustration with Trump in his district. Matt Rosendale, the Republican Senate candidate in Montana, on the other hand, would love it if Don Jr., Trump's son, showed up at every single campaign rally, not just, you know, once a week or whatever he's been doing recently, and that Trump came all the time because he's running a very culture-based campaign in a very rural state And he wants to remind Trump voters that they like Republicans and Trump is the symbol of that. So it it really depends. It runs the gamut. And so you don't have a single message that can work for everything for Republicans, which is a problem. And President Trump is most comfortable being himself. And that's what he's chosen to do. He doesn't show a lot of nuance in the way he tries to dominate the news cycle every week. And you've, you've had complaints just in the last few days from Republican strategists talking about ending birthright citizenship through an executive order, which upsets conservatives because it would be you know, changing the Constitution with an executive order, which they were really unhappy when President Obama was pushing the bounds on, on that front. So then should Democrats be running on an anti-Trump message? We'll know the answer to that uh, after the votes are counted. Um, you know, what we know now is what they've chosen to do, which is not to for the most part. You know, there's really only a handful of districts. And these are the very 
concentrated suburban races, Northern Virginia, Barbara Comstock, suburban Chicago, Colorado. There are only a few places where Democrats will mention Trump in their ads. More often than not, it's about pocketbook issues. It's about protecting pre-existing conditions, lowering health care costs, middle-class tax cut. Democrats are trying to reintroduce themselves to voters after a pretty disastrous 2016 election in which not only in that election, but in the polling afterwards, when they were doing focus groups afterwards, these voters don't like Democrats much anymore. They don't, they don't think they're on their side. They don't think they care about the economy. They, there, there really is a brand issue here that Democrats really have to deal with. And Democrats have concluded that, look, Trump's baked in. We can't control what's happening every day on Twitter, but we can control what we're saying to voters. And so they're focusing on their message to voters for the most part and letting Trump be Trump. So then ultimately, how will we measure Trump's influence on this year's midterm elections? Well, we'll know with the result. I mean, typically in these elections, the average over decades is the president's party will lose 30-some seats. If that happens, Democrats win control of the House. If it's a very narrow victory and if Republicans are able to pick up two or three seats in the Senate, it's sort of a mixed result. And I think it will show the president's continued strength. He will have beaten the historical average. Uh, He'll have some help. I mean, redistricting was worse for Democrats this year than it's been in the past. But it won't be a, a catastrophic shift. If he's able to hold the House, it'll be an enormous victory for the president. If, on the other hand, you have you know, the Senate ends up tied or, or Democrats find a way to get a majority there and the House is a big swing in seats, I think there'll be a lot of fear in the Republican Party that what worked in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, who is really a flawed candidate in many ways, she was sort of a perfect foil for his kind of politics, may not work going into 2020 if Democrats are able to put somebody up who's a stronger candidate. And both parties are going to have to sort of recalibrate once we know the result. But all we have right now are polls. And every pollster will tell you, even the, the people who read the most polls, that they know which races are tied, who's up a point, who's down a point. But they also know that these races can all swing three points or four points on election day. It depends who comes out to vote. And uh, no one knows the answer to that. And there's no way to know the answer, really, until, until the, the, the ballots are counted. Well, on that point, then, what will you be watching for on Tuesday? Uh, I think the the biggest suspense here is whether the enthusiasm we saw in some of the early special elections in the Virginia governor's race last year and the Alabama special election in the Senate race, where you had enormous outpouring of Democratic voters, white women with college degrees, but also black women, Latinos, just coming out in mass in off-year elections, in part because of Trump. If that repeats itself and there isn't a real strong Republican response, you're going to see that pretty early in the night uh, in some of these House races. And, and, you know, it may be a while before the California races are called and we know exactly what the final count is. But if Republicans are losing seats in upstate New York and lose, you know, four or more seats in New Jersey, lose, you know, a number of seats in Pennsylvania, they could even lose seats in Ohio. Those will all be important indicators of where the country's going. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? For election night results live on Tuesday, visit WashingtonPost.com. And for more episodes of Can He Do That? Tune in next week and listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the delightful Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 